Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. Mike Nelson's works are somehow between salvage yards and dreamscapes. He works with things from the present and the just past and recomposes them into these spaces that ask you to think twice on contemporary culture and our ways of being. This episode includes more of an artist's conversation. I think we really unpack the core of Mike's practice while reflecting on the processes of making work, making a living, and negotiating one's own presence in the world as we live it on a day-to-day basis. Mike Nelson is an artist whose work I really admire, and over the course of years we've had several conversations about being an artist, maintaining a practice, and many more things. Today's conversation offers great insight into how Mike thinks and works. We talk about his decision processes, or equalizer sliders as he likes to call them, and how he sources his materials both in terms of content and artifacts, and the ways in which he reassembles and ultimately how he assesses his own work. We also dive into his own cosmology of references through the artists, counterculture, politics, literature, legends and myths, and perhaps most importantly, places and memories. As always, in the episode notes, there's rich information and we've mapped out all the references for you. You can also get a glimpse of Mike Nelson's works from our Instagram account at ahali.podcast. So let's hear from Mike. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today, Mike. Oh, no, it's always nice to see you. Sort of like a, seems like a while since we were. I was full of cold and in a cafe in Istanbul. <laughs> I wish I was there with you instead, yeah. but still. Yeah, definitely so. And it was the just before the opening of the projector. Yes. Your recent show in Istanbul. And it's been, I think, almost two years now. So let me start by asking, how is it going with the pandemic? The time is passing very slow. I said at the very beginning that I felt like uh, Rip Van Winkle and from old American folklore when he, he wakes up and he finds he's been asleep for 100 years. And I felt as though that was going to be the effect of, of the existing in the pandemic. And I think very much that's what it feels like. It certainly feels like a decade, if not more, has passed since... I was in the world that I remembered. And in many ways, that fills me with quite an extreme sense of confusion around you know, my identity and, and, and the world in which I belong to or perceive that I belong to and the one that perhaps now I'm entering back into. So I think at this very moment, I think in a way, this doing this podcast sort of heralds that moment of the that beginnings of anxiety about what, what it is we're actually going back into. I think in many ways, during the lockdown, being, you know, of a certain ilk, of a certain age, having a bit of time to myself and actually not going from exhibition to exhibition and teaching uh, stuff, it was actually quite a, a relief on a strange level. It was like, uh, suddenly it was, I was kind of like, it's guilty to admit that, but in a way I enjoyed a bit of time to myself. But now the anxiety and this payment time in a way. So. <laughs> You are in London now, or? Yeah, I'm in London. I mean, to give you an idea, I'm in a, an old shop in Crystal Palace, which is right on the southern edges of London, sort of a, yeah, in my studio, which is yeah, just a small shop and nestled amongst a bunch of old junk shops, which is quite a pleasant place for me to be. So, but London, yeah, London feels like a completely different place. Mm-hmm. In the last few, few months, or year, year and a half, it'll be interesting to see what will actually happen to it. It's actually quite pleasant on a certain level to wander the streets and not and be able to occupy an empty pavement but in terms of its uh, existence and its um, prosperity it is slightly worrying but I suspect having existed for over two millennia I suspect it'll carry on in some form or other. Yeah no I mean all our previous conversations have obviously been in the kind of the old normal and you were very much engaged in making spaces. And I mean, I had a similar experience. So I wanted to start with that because I was curious, like that relief 
and in a way what that relief is transforming to or whether you see it kind of returning right back into the way things are or were there any kind of shifts in the way you think? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think one hopes there will be shifts in terms of the way people are treated in terms of egalitarian sort of ways, whether it be in terms of economics or diversity, but ultimately economics potentially is the most important because without fair economic structures and systems, sort of those other effects of you know, diversity or sort of gender sort of like can't, won't be addressed anyway. So I think, but of course, what the pandemic has done is to, is to really affect the prosperity of many countries. So this is also looking difficult and awkward. So dreams or visions that we have of sort of like a, a fairer world that kind of might emerge after this pandemic may be a little cut short. One hopes not, but sort of like a, it certainly doesn't, there's a, a dark side of me that sort of imagines that that might be the case. And we've also seen many people becoming very prosperous many wealthy people yeah. becoming more prosperous through the pandemic and actually using the cover in a way sort of um, to actually sort of uh, get things in place to their own personal benefit as opposed to the, as, as the masses, the populace. So I think there's reasons to be sort of optimistic, but there's quite a lot of reasons to be pessimistic, unfortunately. And we can also see it in, our, in the governments as well. Certainly, I'm sure you can reflect upon it in your own um, context, but, you know, in Britain, there's some quite nefarious goings on in the the background of the British political structure mm. and triumphant uh, vaccination sort of um, program, which has been triumphant, you know, not to take away from that, uh, all the people that have been involved in it has allowed a bit of a smokescreen to be pulled over our other problems and other sort of infringements of liberties and that have been able to be pulled into place. And also the distraction from the chaos that Brexit has yeah, is actually brilliant. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, it's a messy future. I mean, the, the most positive thing I saw during down was you know Trump being losing the election in America, which was, you know, if he'd have got a second term, I think it would have been a very, very, very bleak future for America, but also for the rest of the world. I mean, the, the state, the occupation of the capital was—I just never thought I'd see anything quite like that in my lifetime. Yeah, what's your take on it? I mean, it's like, uh, on the one hand, it's really severe, but it's also like uh, kind of visually. Yes. Well, it's, um, it was a bit like a load of people on the way to a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert had got lost <laughs> and sort of like uh, found their way, sort of like uh, you know, somehow believing that the concert was in the capital, sort of like and forced their way in. And I think for me, that was an interesting visual of like equivalent because something to do with the counterculture of the 1960s and that belief in freedom and that belief of sort of um, mm -hmm. in another way, another world of like where the nation might go. It's been hijacked and sort of coerced and sort of like taken by the, by the far right and somehow occupied the imagination of everyday normal American people to somehow believe that that's where the imagination was. So it was kind of a, kind of a dark vision of, uh, you know, perhaps what started as a rather sort of idealistic sort of vision from the late 60s somehow coming crashing down, but looking almost the same, sort of like, but for completely opposite sort of like reasons back on Capitol Hill in, in Washington, sort of uh, under Trump, you know, somehow the new libertarian sort of like, you know, kind of Charles Manson-esque figure, I suppose, because I suppose there were those figures in the late 60s as well that used that kind of cover of libertarian sort of ideas to somehow sort of like undermine. And maybe hijack even. Yeah, exactly. No, no, the word hijack is absolutely perfect. I mean, it's, um, I don't see Trump as a, intelligent man academically but he's certainly in intuitive terms there's a huge intelligence in many ways kind of a, which obviously he used in business and and then he's applied to the manipulation of other people which um but in a very dark and unpleasant way yeah i think it's like it's nice to start in this i mean not nice but <laughs> kind of interesting to start in this note because it somehow to me resonates with your work on several levels is uh, on the one hand there's this like when i think about your work two things immediately come to my mind and maybe we can unpack them a little bit one is the question of salvage you know taking things from other places and kind of reinstating them in new conditions or new compositions 
And maybe in a way, partly wrestling with the past, but also kind of projections to the future. So that's one thing, the question of salvage. And the other is like, uh, in a way, you mentioned dreams in a positive sense, but dreams are also, in a way, misconstructs of what we kind of accumulate, what we perceive. And your installations always appear to me somehow as if it's like a construction of a dream, so to say. Not in a utopian sense, but in really like the mental sense. But maybe let's start with salvage. How did you come to this question of taking things from the past or wrestling with the past, both materially and also your own kind of personal history and political histories, and then reassembling them? I think when I look back at the work, I'm often drawn to things that are on the point of obsolescence, that they're almost coming to this kind of pinnacle of uh, visibility, perhaps, but it's just starting to wane and you can see that it's starting to fall off. I think things at these, this point are always very interesting. Kind of, um, I think back to, say, the coral reef, which was this labyrinth, for a better, a better word, um, of um, receptions that emulated minicab office, which now, if you think of a minicab office, it's obsolescent in many, many ways. Can it, they, you know, Uber and the mobile phone has just about killed them. But at one point, these were one of the most prevalent sort of like spaces within the cityscape of a city like London. You almost didn't notice them. They were sort of slotted between sort of other shops and pubs and on every high street. Um, And I suppose I was drawn to them because not only were they so prevalent, but also they had that sort of sense of kind of fragility as well. Mm. Both of the people that occupied them, worked for them. I mean, in a way, they were the sort of uh, Deliveroo and Uber drivers of their time, obviously. They were the kind of um, people on sh- no contracts, you know, having to use their own car, just you know, sticking a taxi symbol in their window and driving at night, sort of like picking drunken people back up and taking them back to their, their homes after a night out. Sort of, uh, but also they were kind of culturally very mixed, you know, especially in a city like London. You know, they came from many different places and it always appeared to be like a frontage for something. And there was always a sense of something behind that you couldn't see. Mm. And I think in objects that suggest that obsolescence, they come with a, a slipstream of sort of like um, of ideas and sort of like uh, histories and memories that, kind of, uh, that you're aware of. They're almost tangible. You just can't quite touch. And I think things like that always appeal to me because, you know, they're hugely charged as, in terms of a space or an object. And then I suppose to carry on this idea of obsolescence, the, the idea of the dark room, like the magazine, the, the work in the 2003 Istanbul Biennale was a photographic dark room that documented the Valida hand sort of like in its entirety. But again, the reason I could use dark room was because it was already on that point of obsolescence. It was still the main way that, you know, magazines, advertising sort of like a, were still documenting in, on film and transparency, but digital was coming in. It wasn't strong enough as yet. But it was it was not nostalgic at that point. A dark room, a dark room was yeah. still a working space that somehow made sense within the working spaces of the of the hand at that time. And then to the asset strippers, where the obsolescence of machinery of those these huge objects that were manipulated sort of like steel and wood, etc., and produced huge amounts of textiles. Again, all these more analog machines are very much on the point of obsolescence. And so they we talk of a world that I've lived through somehow, I suppose. And, has gone. That's very interesting. And also that obsolescence kind of resonates with the context, especially in the case of the magazan, is also the Han as a kind of commercial building typology has been is still around to a certain extent, but it's in a way has been like in a long process of disappearance. But I'm also thinking about more like material or object parts like the truck tires, for example, you were collecting on highways. Yeah, the blowdown tires. Yeah. I mean, for me, that was a work that was in the uh, in production in my mind since 1996 when I was living in on a residency in the north of England, and I'd drive up and down the A1, which is one of the major roads of, of Britain, and I'd look at these objects and just think what perfect sculptural objects, but untouched by human hand, because there's this kind of moment of alchemy where this whole history of like the manipulation of, of raw material, the use of sort of like a, the, the intelligence of sort of technicians and scientists to sort of like make these things happen, all kind of comes together in this kind of perfect existential sort of road, sort of like movie kind of happening of a sort of blowout somehow and the violence <laughs> makes this object and then um 
you're left with this very dark sort of um, unique object. You know, every one is utterly unique. You'll never have one that looks exactly the same. And of course, every road on every continent has the same tyres. I mean, maybe you might have more Japanese tyres or Korean tyres in the southern hemisphere, and maybe you might have a few more sort of uh, European in Europe. But on the whole, they they mix up and move around sort of like, and there's something kind of fantastically sort of like unifying somehow and sort of banal but compelling at the same time, kind of uh, about these blown out tyres. So uh, I've done three incarnations of them as of yet, sort of one in London, one in Dusseldorf and one in um, in Lyon. Sort of. And you know, I was actually planning another one this year, or last year, but I've actually changed my plans now for the space because I think uh, times have changed a bit. The space doesn't... <laughs> was, anyway, that's another story, but... Yeah. Did you collect the tires from like each location or is it like uh, you have a collection of yeah. blown out tires? Well, this is what I worked out. That's kind of, you know, obviously probably one of the most stupid things you could do is to stop on a motorway to pick up a blown up tire, sort of like uh, mm. for yourself and for uh, the, the rest of the sort of like travelers upon that road. But it, it struck me that where do all these tires go to? They must disappear somewhere so it's actually quite simple you just ring up the authorities and they have a place they stick them all in a big skip a big dumpster container and if they allow you access then you just you know you visit it over a period of time and pull the ones out you like you find the most uh, formally sort of like uh, suggestive of what you you're thinking somehow that's clever. I actually always imagined you like on the highway, yeah. stopping a car, <laughs> picking yeah, things it's up. It's far more romantic that that idea. Sort of, uh, and in a way, you know, I, I can somehow you know, salute the uh, romance of it, but not the practicality. Yeah. Sort of like, uh, not for me or anybody else driving behind me. <laughs> Totally not. Yeah. And also, but with the like most recent work I've seen of yours, it was in the Tate Britain, the Duvin Galleries, and there it was then becoming almost monumentalizing, but in a way, again, reassembling or stacking these machine parts, almost like the kind of a monument to the Industrial Revolution, but also suggesting something else or becoming something else of its own. Again, like all these industrial products, also as cultural products have that sculptural quality, but they come with a kind of load. So how was it for you to kind of build that narrative in the in the Duvin Gallery and uh, the way you kind of organized the machine parts? You know, it was a, obviously a big show. It's a very big space. It's maybe 200 meters long or 150 meters long. So I think the problem with that space is that it is very, even though it has a huge scale, it's quite narrow. It does feel like a corridor within the sort of like space. And a lot of the power of the space evaporates into the space outside, into these incredible collections of Tate Britain. So, so you know, in a way, it was trying to work out how to make sense of that space and what that sense was for. It was, it was built in 1937 as an exhibition hall for sort of monumental sculpture. Really. And in my thinking, it kind of it was very much something to challenge sort of a the British Museum, the ground floor of the British Museum and the artefacts that were in there, or the ground floor of the V&A, especially the cast room somehow. So in a way, I was thinking of them in terms of this, but I was also thinking in terms of what the space actually was and why it existed. It was opened, it was paid for by Lord Davin, who's made his money out of selling art to industrialists in the 1930s. And see that it's this very point where I suppose British sculpture was going to become very kind of uh, pertinent and important, sort of like uh, the likes of Henry Moore and in Chad, you know, in Chadwick and sort of uh, Caro and etc. And so um, I suppose it was what was an idea of monumental sculpture at this point, and what was the could it its meaning actually be and the problematics of it. So I suppose this all kind of mixed up with a sort of a more practical problem of actually material as well. What do you build it? What do you make it out of? Originally, I started thinking about casting and I was already thinking about the post-war period that I'd grown up through and reflecting upon that from the point of which when the, the galleries were opened and this idea of Britain really being this first sort of state in many ways with its NHS and the welfare state and the way that sort of like the Labour Party got into power after the war and how... Now, looking back, that feels like a momentary blip in time in many ways. And yet in my actuality and existence, that felt like something that was going to progress. That was going to be the progression. Whereas I suppose in many ways, this period of of COVID has almost felt like a full stop. But uh, but potentially the full stop was probably more likely Brexit, which was looming heavily when I was building the show for the Tate. 
In fact, it opened the week when the first week we were meant to leave the European Union. So this mixture of different concerns in terms of, sort of industry, in terms of matter and material, mixed to somehow imagine the space, I suppose, as a warehouse or a salvage yard, somehow an architectural salvage yard. But then there's always the problem of where to access the material. Before, I'd always look for it in markets and yards and travel, whereas it obviously became clear that that was impossible now in the world as it, as it is. I mean, everything exists online. And so I became interested in these um, liquidation auctions where whole companies are sold off through mm-hmm. closure. Um, and this is where I bought the material from. So I suppose in many ways, you had this sense of a monumental sculptural exhibition of the last vestiges of the British Empire in some ways, which somehow reflected the sort of like the, the sculptural nature of the V&A and the sort of like the British Museum, you know, but was constructed from these last spoils of what really had made these other spaces possible in the sense that the Industrial Revolution was where the wealth of Britain was made, possibly, you know, exploiting many other countries in the process, or not possibly, but certainly, sort of, uh, and uh, you know, taking many of their objects to display in the museums that were constructed. So somehow there seemed a sort of, sort of dark humour or irony sort of like to the construction of these monumental sculptures out of the last vestiges of these companies that were kind of being pulled apart, whether they be, you know, woodworking workshops, huge sort of engineering companies or textiles companies. But also the relationship, as you said, between the, these objects, these machines and 20th century sculpture, unavoidable, kind of not always intrigued me, but also was very symbiotic in that these machines often allowed you to construct these sculptures. And so there was this situation of sculpture informing form or design and design informing sculpture that went through that post-war period in many ways. Yeah. And much of, let's say, the formalistic side of modern sculpture has been informed by this kind of machine aesthetics. But now it's like bringing the objects that have reached their kind of obsolescence and to treat them as sculptures, which is exactly what, as you said, the original museum did, like taking artifacts and architectural elements and objects that had a certain use in the time or geography that they belong to and kind of replace them. Yeah. I mean, I think I was was astounded at the fact that you could, by just dislocating a machine from just in terms of height, by stacking it upon a steel desk, you know, on top of a concrete form, that people would come and they'd look at it. And to many people, I could see that they didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. It was somehow the effect of sort of like imagining who are the people that use this? You know, who are the people that sort of produce this? Who are the people that lived around this? And you know, I can see the patina of their work upon sort of like a, and yet these machines were being used until a few months before. And so within, I think it also, so in a way, it talked of the speed of society of which we're living in now. Sort of a, whereas when we look at a sort of a, like an Assyrian bull, so we say in the British museums, sort of like a, all the frieze, the lion hunt frieze, and we look at it and we're kind of, a, we're imagining, wondering who these people were, what their society was 2,000, 3,000 years back. And yet here we are looking at these machines that have just come out of a factory last week or last month and imagining the same. And I think that kind of relationship between these different epochs of the industrial and the technological, Mm -hmm. it was very much, you know, the frisson between these two sort of like, and that's why it seems very pertinent that I did use this technology, these online auctions to access the material as well. You know, it seemed to make it even darker and more kind of a, and more kind of um, exploitative in many ways. And it felt like that doing it. It wasn't a pleasant experience. You know, it wasn't like, hey, great, I can sit on the online auction and buy loads of things. It was actually a very sad and slightly unpleasant sort of like uh, process and very stressful, actually. I'll go, never again, sort of like, uh, well, I say never again, but still, I didn't see much options these days. But so, yeah, it was an interesting process. And I suppose I was really worried about it being patronizing, to be quite honest. That was my greatest worry. Mm-hmm. In what ways? Well, you know, many people spent their whole life working on these machines, kind of a... Uh, you know, then suddenly to see them sort of stacked up and displayed in the tape gallery, they, I, I was worried that it would be seen to be sort of, um, you know, a little trite, shall we say, kind of, um, or patronising sort of. Um. But actually, in my experience, I mean, I did wander around a few times and I bumped into a few people. They didn't know who I was, I, you know, and uh, had a conversations. I met a guy that I'd worked on. There, there was a welder in there. They'd worked on for many years up in Glasgow making Hillman in, in cars. And, um, and he was quite moved by it. And I was, you know, surprised and very pleased. I mean, the other aspect, I suppose, was I didn't want to come across as being making a very pointed argument around Brexit. You know, I really wanted to make a, a work that perhaps talked of 
the underlying sort of like problems or histories of Britain that made this situation arise in many ways. And I think, you know, it was that I was relieved to find, you know, I think I was slightly reassured when unloading a lorry with a, a lorry driver from Essex who sort of like uh, started a conversation with me around the objects and I could tell his kind of empathy to the objects and the histories were similar in many ways to mine and yet his conclusions politically mm-hmm. were opposite. And, and I thought that was interesting. And I think yeah. you know, make a work that was open enough for people to, to perhaps understand something about their history, but still have differing sort of like conclusions is quite a success. Even if you see the tire on the highway, or even if you see the machine in a workshop, maybe after closure or in a junkyard, they still carry that not only information, but sort of meaning and a kind of character or presence and also load. I mean, there is a lot of load in this kind of artifacts. And I'm like, when you were talking about the both the examples, I was reminded by this image I saw once in a newspaper, and it was of a warehouse uh, full of boats, small boats, like maybe one power boat, a fisherman's boat, what have you, this kind of number of boats that are in a warehouse somewhere on the near the aging coast. And it was the news about the confiscated boats of the people who were trying to cross the agency to Europe. And in a way, this kind of intercepted objects also carry with them this huge amount of weight. And there's a potency to it. And it's a potency you've got to be quite careful with, ultimately, because it's... um, and I suppose that's the thing about talking about being patronizing to the people that might have worked the machines. Yeah. There was that fear that you were going to, you know, there's, um, I think I've described it before to friends, a bit like a, when you have an equalizer on a, on a tuner or an amplifier, and there's, um, there's these little thing, little bars that slide up and down. And as the currency in terms of, you know, artistic currency might rise up, then potentially the, the currency in terms of human suffering or, an, or unhappiness or sort of like a, or or an equal sort of like treatment of people sort of like also rises up. Mm-hmm. And I think, and then, you know, there's the potential sliders about, you know, material gain that you might have. There's other sliders about sort of like, uh, you know, various sorts of things. But I often think of it in these terms. And when you're thinking about making a work and thinking about you know, referring to something, I think you have to legitimize that sort of like, that you're not exploiting somebody else's sort of horror for your own sort of gain. And that's a difficult one ultimately because it's also changing always because uh, it's, you know, times change, perceptions change, sort of like, uh, so I think um, I can imagine, I can see that picture now in my head of the boats. I haven't seen it, but I can see it. Potency is huge, but sort of like, uh, and as a photograph, it's it's kind of perfect. But as an object, it's um, untouchable. Yeah, no, definitely so. And, but... I mean, this this notion of sliders, I think, is uh, really interesting. And there is not only one slider in that sense. There are like multiple. And you have to also always take into consideration like how they work together in a way. Equalizer, you know, as you said. Yes, of course. I mean, it's like uh, it's music and you're trying to make something which articulates something kind of in terms of and communicates in terms of feeling it's the price of it has to be considered and i think this is a, and you know people get it wrong I, i'm sure i've got it wrong in you know in shows but i think it's something what you're constantly trying to work out as you go along because if you also because you need to push it as well you need to push things to certain points to going to get the best the most interesting result but it's at that point that uh, and i think that is where judgment comes in ultimately and it's not just like a conceptual or a sort of political judgment it's also a formal judgment and all these things are you know working together their language is sort of merging somehow kind of under and it's it's a risk you know it's always a risk to make an exhibition definitely and sometimes you merge or these kind of salvaged artifacts kind of converge in some of your works in a way that they still remain familiar but the kind of expanded assemblage that you result in in some of the works become another totality or become another kind of whole in a sense and then it's maybe not so much I'm thinking of the like the British Pavilion and the Venice Biennale and some other works that are more composite, so to say, that they become kind of the site of like multiple 
narratives, but it becomes something else of its own. How do the process or the, how do the equalizers work when you kind of push those items to become part of another whole that says something else almost? Yeah, I mean, the British Pavilion in Venice in 2011 is an interesting one because that did throw up a very curious and awkward situation to deal with in many ways. And, and I think, I mean, this was just a, after the moment of the Arab Spring, and I think to, many, to a large extent I wanted to comment on that but didn't really feel qualified in many ways to sort of comment on that. Sort of, uh, but at the same time, the British Pavilion is quite a good place to comment on anything to do with the ups and downs of empires and sort of uh, geopolitics ultimately. And so in, to some extent, the idea of referencing back to 2003, Istanbul Biennale, and to rebuild, well, taking the photographic documentation of the Vilidahan, which is all that was left, then to rebuild the building back around itself within the British pavilion. So in a way, you had this sense of two empires contained with two exteriors within one building. It seemed a kind of an interesting departure point for an exhibition you know, within the Biennale, because I think in many ways, the, you know, I think my father taught me years ago in, in the dark or in the dusk, if you want to see something clearly, and you want to see an object, then look slightly to the side of it, mm -hmm. and you see the object more clearly. And I think in many ways, to look at the Arab Spring, but to look to the side, to Turkey, mm -hmm. to the Ottoman Empire, to Ataturk, to the, the secular state in the, in the Muslim world, was very much an interesting way to sort of like assess it in many ways. I don't know how many people saw that. I think the failure of that work was possibly its success in that it became like a spectacle and the kind of the politic of it. I think I perhaps had misread how things had shifted over, over that decade in many ways, in art terms. And I think it was seen as an experience, but not really thought about in any more deeper terms. And perhaps the success of its beauty, you know, because it was you know quite beautifully constructed by me and a, you know, a, a bunch of us, you know, David, you know, Ben, Stuart, Orens, or like, and then an Italian bit, Morello, Piero Morello as well, sort of like, and his two guys. I mean, but it did strike me that was where perhaps the prose, the language of it, the formality was slightly out of step with the time mm. or the context. But I, I actually really enjoyed that work. I, and I think it was very interesting work because for me personally, sort of like in terms of its commentary on a, on a world politic, but it's kind of collaboration or it's kind of for its um or it's running in hand with my own personal history in terms of uh, the Istanbul Biennale. But that idea of dropping one Biennale inside another, the sort of shift of Biennales across the world within that time period, but also sort of like the reference back to an earlier work in, in Venice in 2001. So there's a lot of personal backstories and whatever. But in the end, I think perhaps what made it successful, though, for some people, when, if they could actually get the space and time to enjoy it in that way, is what is to go back to your second category from salvage to dreams. Yeah, exactly. And I think this was a work that was dreamlike. And I remember there was a, a South American Brazilian artist, I think. I, I can't remember his name now, but he was a very nice young guy I met there. And he was sort of like saying, you know, I could have, I went into your, you know, your work in the pavilion. And, you know, I could have, oh, it's another one of these. I mean, let's face it, there's been quite a few people over the years. I mean, making works like this. I mean, I'm, I'm very beholden to sort of like, you know, Keenholz and Kabakov, you know, the likes of which the artists I was looking at when I started building these architectural kind of structures and pull text sort of like, and, but now, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, again, it's become a kind of trope and a familiar trope in many ways. And I think he was commenting on that saying, well, you know, it's another one of these constructions, you know, you know, and I started walking in. And then there's a sudden moment in there when suddenly it just, it just kind of flew out in a way. It just it got, my head just sort of like just it just I kind of lost it a bit, and it just all became, you know, and it had a strange effect on me. And I think, and this is the, when I first made the coral reef, which is the first one of this type, I suppose, in ninety nine two thousand. Even when I was building it, I was starting to get this sort of sense of when you're building something which, to all intent, is real. And yet its whole purpose has been built for you to step inside of. Um, and you're aware in your brain that it's not real, but your eyes telling you something different. And there's a sort of like almost a, a glitch, like a schism, and it's almost kind of slightly um, hallucinogenic, drug-like. And I think when you mix that with a sort of social commentary or a politic, I think it can be quite a heady mix yeah. when it works.
but it doesn't always work. Yeah, I mean, not all dreams are like <laughs> great. That's exactly what I meant when I was referring to being like in relation to dreams or dreamlike, not only in the sense of its immersiveness, but in the sense that it kind of brings together familiar items, other narratives, a different kind of mashup of realities and stories and this is what our dreams do, though, in many ways. They, exactly. They reassess our waking life, kind of, and they kind of, you know, they put them in a blender and hopefully we get something out that kind of makes some sense. And it's perhaps that some, yeah. And in terms of, like, how, like, I'm curious, how far you imagine or do you imagine, like, bodies moving around? Do you imagine the kind of public or, like, the visitors, how they experience, or is it more, like, internal and intuitive for you? Uh, no, I, I imagine that. The, however, I think that's part of the reason why I kind of made a mistake in Venice in that I really didn't imagine the numbers and the mass of people in a short period of time. I think these works work best when they're, when you're in them alone or with very few people. And so when you kind of, uh, you know, have to queue for something and then you have to be let in in big groups... The kind of the analogy to the fun fair and the sort of like uh, the haunted house of like which I always liked. Uh, don't get me wrong, I enjoy a haunted house fair when I was a child, sort of like. But it, but when the haunted house doesn't haunt you, then that's not so great. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and when you're stuck in a queue and then stuck with a load of people, sort of like <laughs> the invention of the camera phone, I think has probably kind of pretty much killed it as well. So I don't think people have the ability now to sort of like just exist and, and you know, consume or subsume sort of like a space or an experience. They want to, and as soon as you get a, a camera out, whether it be on a phone or a, an actual camera, you're putting a sort of barrier between yourself and it. I mean, I often used to use, you know, whenever I used to build an exhibition years ago and I documented and I'd go down to the laboratory, get the transparencies back. That was the first moment I could look at it through somebody else's eyes. Like it's like a, you know, like a distance. And I remember whenever I made a catalogue, I'd often ask somebody to look at the catalogue for me. And then I'd look over their shoulder because then I could see it as somebody else could see it. But if I had it in my hands, my own hands, I would be able to see it in that same way. And I think that's okay at, when you're trying to get a distance on something. But when you want to be enveloped and sort of um within something then you know why on earth get a phone out and start taking pictures and it's just like yeah and now we are going through an era where there are even exhibitions or let's say hangs or installations that are maybe produced solely for the purpose of circulating images of them and maybe nobody even sees them like instagram and stuff like most yeah how the market operates and things like that is become almost like some objects are only present in front of the camera and one of my students did a speculation on this like he imagined the warehouse with many different kind of rooms where you can install works and looks like an exhibition but it's only for the producing the imagery around it. This has always been the case, even in my generation at college. You know, I remember being haunted by images that I, of artists' work, which I remember a, a Dieter Roth image of a storage structure in a space. And even to this day, I don't really know whether it was the whole space or just the object, the storage object, because I actually like the, the image of the space and the, that imagery of that, of that work still, you know, came with me. And I think... In many ways, when I was building the spaces, especially in my when I was earlier earlier on when I was younger, I did have a, like a photographic mind in me. Where there was always a prevalent angle from which I was building it from. The other everything else counted as well. There was always a prevalent. Well, we're talking about when you're building fifteen rooms, you know, fifteen angles, sort of as it were, and then all the angles down the corridor. So you were like you'd often be always returning to one space when you're building it and looking at it. And then you'd be wandering around looking at the rest as well, but there'd always be that one where, and I think that was a, a photographic, but that was an analog photographic sort of like head that I had and still have in many ways, sort of like how it is now, I don't know, sort of like to these new a generation of people who have grown up with a phone virtually tied to their hand you know, or a camera. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> now that you touched on the early days, I'm curious also like how it started. How did you end up making such work? Do you have a retrospective vision on that? Have you thought about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I went to a university called Reading University, which I had no idea why I was going there. I just applied and it was one of the few places that made an offer that, you know, so I went. And 
I didn't do a foundation course. I went straight from school to this university. And it had one department that was very particular. They kind of got rid of the sculpture department. It became the fourth area. And it was about all about installation, about environments, about sound. Sort of a, and it was run by a couple of light sculptors, really. Sort of a, a guy called Bill Culbert and Ron Hazelden. Bill did the New Zealand Pavilion some years ago in Venice. Unfortunately, he died since. Sort of like, and then Ron's still about, still working on it. Richard Wilson who did the big oil piece, you know, sort of Rosevin Kelsey, who was a very famous British, unfortunately not with us anymore, sort of installation artist. And Mark Camille Chamovitz, again, very well-known, sort of like a very cerebral, sort of like artist making a, a certain type of installation in the early 70s. And I just fell into this department and, found, and just felt comfortable, you know. it was. I went to be a painter and those all those nasty habits she learned at school I couldn't get rid of, but when I got a few objects in my hand and when I somehow understood that sort of like uh, somehow there's a moment I remember of just looking at a pile of stuff on the floor and thinking it's, it's as beautiful as anything else, you know, is it, and it's interesting. There's so much, there's enough meaning in that. And then from then on, I, and then I left Reading. I, I had two years in the wilderness, you know, working as a builder, signing on, you know, the welfare state, sort of um, trying to get into an MA, finally got into Chelsea to do sculpture, which was far more sculptural, but Again, with a great um, bunch of people around me, kind of. Um, and at that time, my external examiner was Robin Klasnick, who ran Matt's Gallery. And he took a liking to me and my work and then began a courtship that lasted three or four years of going back and forth. Every time I did a smaller show, I would go back and show him images because he said, yeah, every time you do a show, bring me some images. And, and you know, I just waited patiently till he asked me to do a show. And, yeah, and then I showed him Matt's Gallery the first time in 96. And then the Coral Reef, 1990, 2000s, um, and then a couple more since. So kind of a, so in a way, there's a certain lineage. I mean, I think sometimes I do think we have, we fall into sort of like uh, as artists into, you know, tracks almost of certain ilks and types. And I think, you know, I found mine. Yeah. And do you continue to teach? Because then like now that you touched upon your... Yeah, I have a, like um, a position um, at Kingston University in the fine art department where I'm teaching. It's predominantly research, but I'm also teaching mainly on the well, on the BA, uh, the MA and occasionally a bit of PhD. And then I'm still visiting the Rikes Academy every now and again. So I, do, I think I've got a, a day in a couple of weeks and I was there last week, which is, which is always a pleasure because it's... That's well, kind of an education for me, to be quite honest. Again, it's one of those symbiotic things where you're talking to people with very advanced practices, which are often touching on areas of concerns and interests that are completely outside of my you know, experience, mm-hmm. kind of a be it kind of cultural or just in terms of time, you know, sort of age. And maybe let's go back to the materials one more time. Like, I'm also curious what happens to these objects and the parts of the installations, uh, you once told me that some of them like go back into the ether where they came from. But I'm curious because there's such also like a material load, so to say, to your work. And like, do you let it be salvaged or do you keep a storage or like, how do you deal with the remnants in a way? I have storage. I have storage problems, as you can imagine. I've got a barn up in Scotland or a shed up in Scotland that... I, don't, I haven't been in for over a decade. It's just nothing's come, come in or out. It's just like sits there. What on earth it's doing, I don't know. It's like uh, some works get bought. I mean, the coral reef was bought by the Tate. The third work from the from Matt's gallery was uh, the Moderna Musée bought. So, you know, a few works sell. And then a few works, some of the more, you know, um, the works that are more sculptural, then there's, I suppose, a potential that there is, that they can be sold as art, but it's not the most saleable of works, as you can imagine. So, I mean, I think it's, uh, so, I mean, at the moment... Um, but it's also where the work derives its power from. I mean, it's not something that... Yeah, well, it's a, it, again, it's one of those equations, rather like the equalizers that you're thinking of, because should it become too consumable, then there's a power that's kind of sapped. I mean, as one sort of like slider moves up, the other one moves down. And this is something I've always been very constantly aware of. And, uh, but at the same time, you do have to live. And these equations have changed as well with time in terms of state funding. You know, the, the amount of state funding has got less and less in my lifetime, sort of in Britain. So predominantly, more and more of us are looking at private funding, whether that be sort of like for, for exhibitions via institutions that are run by private funding, sort of like, or by, you know, um, 
altruistic sort of collectors themselves directly, sort of, um, whether it be buying the work or funding something. So, and I think in that respect, it's a very complicated time now because we see the state shrinking and diminishing in its cultural power, shall we say, within Britain at any rate, sort of, um, but the private money and the private power sort of like uh, rising. I mean, in many ways, it reminds me of Victorian times and that in, in British terms, centuries sort of. Mm. You mean a bourgeoisie like being, the, like taking over the patronage? Yes, as opposed to perhaps working in, well, I mean, there were structures in place, you know, increasingly through the sort of like 20th century in Britain at any rate, sort of like uh, that instigated certain positions of, of panels who would assess and judge what was, and of course this was always potentially up for corruption as, as anything else, but there was some sort of attempt to try and, you know, perhaps create a situation where there would be a structure that would allow for some sort of, like, determination other than the fact that you've just got a lot of money and you like it. Yeah. Sort of, uh, which I don't see as, I see that kind of having diminished in my... Yeah. And not only for the monetary dimension, but also for the fact that such an organization also, in a way, suggests at least that there is a public value of cultural production. Yes, and they're accountable for that. Yeah. Which I think is I think the populism that again we're back to the sort of like uh, the Crosby Stills Nash Trump moment sort of like the kind of vision of the 60s gone sour somehow. This sort of like is argument around the uh, freedom and libertarian sort of values somehow being hijacked by powers that somehow can turn it to their own good in a, in a much darker and sinister way. So I think, um, but of course, the, the flip side could be equally as problematic in terms of art and culture. So we're kind of in a very strange and awkward time at the moment, I think. So um, I'm not really quite sure how it's going to play out. Yeah. No, I'm not sure either. But maybe like on that nice loop, we can kind of like at least attempt at a closure and maybe... One final question could be, in a way, what's your take on what remains in terms of, unless the work is in a collection, that's, of course, a different story. And there are, like, strong memories. I mean, all my experience of your work, each work has a, like, very significant inscription, so to say, in my mind, that I can recall immediately, you know, that's like, I can already visualize each and every work I've seen of yours. And you mentioned a little bit, we just touched on a little bit documentation, but also like how, like what's your take on what remains in terms of maybe documentation and publication of and around the works that you've done? Yeah, I mean, what you've described is very much what I set out to do. It was to try and occupy areas of people's memories, their brains, sort of like with this work. And I think... And I think that was a, a great thing to, to try and do. But as, as you get older, you realize that this is finite because people disappear, you know, people die and memories fade. Sort of like, and how the work exists, kind of beyond my time or our time, I don't know. And in, to some degree, I've always tried to ignore that because in a way it doesn't really matter because it becomes about legacy. It becomes about sort of, a, you know, empire building in many ways and is there any point to that and and the artists I look back at and I was influenced by sort of a predominantly from the 60s and perhaps 70s were very much in the ether they were kind of they were more about myth or legend and you know even now sort of like we have certain legends and in Britain sort of like that carry on even though there's very little or even none no physical evidence of than ever having existed. And yet the romance of these legends and myths, you know, live on with us. And then we love them even more for the fact they don't have some sort of like crumbling memorial or sort of a building to somehow sort of show for it. You know, I was talking the other day with a friend about my liking for Australia sort of like as a place and, and explaining that in many ways it's because, you know, when you go to Egypt and you look at the pyramids or the temples at Thebes or whatever, And you can see somehow where all these peoples called the Egyptians inhabited and, and what represents them. It 
it's quite easy in many ways to sort of like to categorize that and to see it and to sort of like and and to understand on a certain level sort of a you know it becomes a motif for sort of like a a shop front it becomes, you know the pyramids or you know you all but they kind of contain it's like a bottle it contains them sort of a and yet in Australia what makes the Aust- Australia so odd is that indigenous people kind of uh there left no monuments and so the whole landscape is imbued with a certain sense of oddness and I think you see this reflected in a lot of Australian sort of films of the 70s kind of somehow but it's it is tangible out there this feeling of sort of like oddness and I think and I think in many ways there's an aspect to that that I rather like but Maybe I'm not confident enough, though, to sort of like think that I could. <laughs> no, I mean, it raises interesting questions about the idea of the footprint in a way, which is now also discussed on like ecological terms as well. Like what is the footprint? And the footprint has almost become like shifted from being something positive to being something negative. Yes. Like in the case of carbon footprint and things like that. But I'm just curious, what were the myths or legends you were referring to? That are not so tangible, yeah. Yeah, like uh, the Arthurian legend, shall we say, or Robin Hood. It'd be another one. Like, there was, you know, the Robin Hood existed, sort of like, but they really, I mean, it's all, you know, it's a myth ultimately. Sort of, uh, but um, and the court of King Arthur, you know, King Arthur existed, but most of what is talked about and goes on is kind of a, uh, is you know, is romance, kind of like uh, ultimately, kind of a, uh, yeah. But it's um, it's still interesting. It survived for all these centuries, and still is a constant sort of um topic for films, for sort of fiction, conversation, for a general sort of like you know euphemisms about British culture. You know, so but it's mm, yeah, not that I've done that, but I just think it's interesting that you know, say, you know, obviously, sort of somebody like Smithson left a few really big monumental kind of gestures, but a lot of his work is in the thinking and. A certain way of being, I suppose. So, and uh, I think that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's a very difficult kind of equation to try and keep some semblance of freedom. And I think up until this point, I think I've done pretty well to actually make a living, have a family, sort of like have a relatively normal life in some ways, but also keep relatively free in terms of what I make and not be and not to have got the kind of the big mega studio with lots of employees making things to to sell to people that you don't want to make particularly, you don't really want to even sell them, but you've got to keep the machinery move, moving. You know, I've still kept just me in this little old shop in Crystal Palace and I, Emma helps me a day a week, you know, with um, emails and whatever we feel like doing on that day. Sort of, um, and so far it's kind of carried on. So still, you know, I think Paul Tech uh, just about got to his early 50s, mid 50s, didn't he? He did all. It always saddens me that, because uh, again, he's an artist whose work, every time they reconstruct his work, it loses a little bit of something for me, in a way. When I look at those grainy photographs of those sort of um, installations or environments in, in Stockholm or in Holland in the early 70s, there's a sort of, um, you can, there's a sort of, again, we're back to photography and documentation, but in many ways that there's a sort of like, um, there's a sense of excitement and vision in them that I don't think you get. Definitely. And life. Yes. Some form of life. I mean, I feel similar about Helio Itzitsika, for yeah, example. Of course, like yeah, yeah. His environments, like in the documentation, seem so visceral and lively, and unfortunately, not so often in the. Yeah, in the reconstruction. Whenever they reconstruct anything, for me, it's like. But even like looking at, at a Smith's in the Deer, which was a, like it was just one of those mirror pieces with a pile of rocks and I mean the, the technician must have been absolutely meticulous it was a fantastically well installed work but it was just lacking it was too almost too good do you know there's a sort of like um, you really want to sort of like often with those works you want to feel like somebody's just doing it and they're not thinking about doing it because once you start thinking about doing it you know it feels utterly different and it's a and it's a very hard thing to quantify I'm sure people will in everyday life, I think I'm just talking gibberish and being absolutely mad. But actually, when you've been doing enough, you know, it's a... No, I think it's also like uh, that thin line between design accuracy, so to say, like in a way, pre-imagining something in a kind of perfect shape and then 
having it executed or executing it yourself versus, let's say, letting some mishaps happen along the way and letting the plans change along the way or that imagining and making kind of intercolliding. Yeah, feeling your it's very difficult. It's a very stressful thing to do, I think. I mean, I, I think the one thing I've realized during this last year is that how stressful I find making exhibitions. Mm. <laughs> uh, I've been strangely relaxed for a, for a year, but irritable about other things, perhaps, but sort of uh, that kind of tension and stress around making an exhibition and making work it's sort of gone. It's back now. Sort of like, because suddenly I've got a load of stuff coming on and I'm like, and, you know, it sounds like a negative thing, but it's not completely negative. And actually, when you actually come to do it, the kind of pleasure and the excitement and the realisation is incredible, but sort of uh, the anticipation I don't like. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally feel you. I, I hear you. Definitely. Did you ever think of changing it? A kind of chaptering it? I think I've chaptered it to, to a degree, but not in the way I do it. I still keep doing it the same way. This is, And I'm thinking about trying, I keep thinking about trying to change it and maybe getting a, more of a studio practice, maybe sort of like, um, you know, getting a bigger studio somewhere, you know, maybe moving out of London so I can have a bigger studio so I can work in a different way. But there's something, you know, it's old habits die hard. Um, and there's this sort of sense of focus. But, you know, obviously I'm also trying to sort of, equate the the speed of the mind the speed of the body and like um i was incredibly fast and able at making things and building things and this is getting le- getting less and this is the thing that's going to that's tripping me up and will trip me up more and more i'm nowhere near as strong or as fast as i used to be and i suppose this aspect is ultimately what will probably trip me up you know sort of and i do need to factor in this aspect i mean i'm trying to make not less ambitious, but perhaps less physically ambitious. You know, obviously the piece of tape was hugely ambitious in a particular physical way, but but not like, say, building the piece in Venice, which the amount of building work that we had to do there, you know, the, the team of four or five of us, and then the, it's like, you know, it's 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 like building a mansion you know, in, in three months. You know, sort of, uh, physically, that was that's so draining. I think you try and again, we're back to the equaliser, you try and, do as much as you as you can as appropriate to your age and fitness and, and your, your usefulness in many ways but i think it's still important to be involved physically with it not just in terms of for the work itself but also for the sort of like um the ideology of making of the work it's a certain quality to being there standing next to you kind of uh, the people that are helping you realize suppose definitely and also i don't mean it in a spiritual way but also like there is some some form of energy that kind of reflects back from the work eventually maybe that could be an interesting point to end is that this notion of the exhaustion i mean the the enormous amount of energy you put into the works and the also the physical labor it takes to construct them and then that knowing that it will be to a certain extent, disappearing is also a kind of, I think, existential, not in a negative sense, but I think it's, there's some dimension to it. For me, I, would, I think when I was young, I, I, I celebrated that destruction of it. So a line in a, a Stanislav Lem short story about Robinson Crusoe, about the eye, there was, they kept building the raft just to pull it apart again, sort of, uh, <laughs> which... Um, Seems kind of nice somehow. Kind of, uh, my friend Jackie always used to, I think, refer to it in an essay on my work once. Yeah, but um, wow, I didn't read that lamb story, but I'll check it out for sure. It's in a perfect vacuum. It's called uh, Lay Robinson Art. <laughs> Robinson Crusoe, yeah. the different forms of the Swiss family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe. Sort of yeah, like yeah, yeah. Desert island sort of myth, I suppose, which is something that I've you know, thought of. In fact, one of the books I reread in lockdown so it was a very yeah, it was perfect the fact that you know through geography and the expansion of em- empire and countries we somehow ended up with robinson crusoe you know from a shipwreck on an island in the atlantic somewhere i think so reading this novel was isolated amongst everybody you know with the calamity that you could see as being the end of that beginnings of that capitalist structure in which sort of Crusoe was shipwrecked. Um, and here I am shipwrecked in my own house, sort of uh, at the end of this capitalist 
economic experiment ultimately kind of and what next you know and all the same problems you know how to get food you know how to kind of communicate how to sort of like uh you know i really enjoyed reading it i must admit sort of uh it seemed to sort of um tally with my experience of lockdown so closely and yet be so far away and curiously sort of like i think the book he wrote afterwards which i started reading but didn't finish was a, a fictionalization but based on word of mouth sort of um commentary on the plague in in london in mm. uh, 1665 so so yeah he was kind of on the button for covid really. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic i think this is uh, maybe a great moment to close and thank you so much for your time mike yeah, really lovely to see you and i must admit i've enjoyed this conversation more than last time even though it was very nice to see you but i I had the most steaming, awful cold, if you remember. Yeah, I remember. God, they wouldn't have allowed in this day and age. They wouldn't have allowed me out looking like that. And there I was at the bar. <laughs> Spreading no it way. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much, Mike. Yep, yep. Lovely to see you. Great seeing you. Yeah, and I, I hope to be in Istanbul with you again soon. Definitely. Looking forward to that. Thank you for joining us and staying until the very end. Mike Nelson's lessons on the agency and potency of objects and his takes on his own positionality as an artist through the metaphor of sliders on an equalizer was thought-provoking. On every occasion, an artist has to decide over a multiplicity of issues, over ethics, politics, effects, even income and many other dimensions. And these virtual sliders operate as part of a decision-making process over the give and takes and to decide on how to negotiate as well as reconcile our decisions. Mike also gave us a comprehensive repertoire of his lineage or kinship with artists throughout many decades. Make sure to check out the show notes as there's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit our website ahali.space or get some visual insights on the works we discussed on Instagram via ahali.podcast. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprank Özer with Daria Yildiz as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Elif Soğuksu and with music by Group Ses. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following or whatever really works for you. This was Ahali Conversations with me, Can Altay, and we hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.